Hi, we're here from Curiosity.com to help you get smarter in just a few minutes. I'm Cody Goff. And I'm Ashley Hamer. Today, you learn about how researchers study the way we mentally represent our relationships with special guest Vivian Zayas from Cornell University. You'll also learn about a daily regimen that can help you pursue your passion despite your day job. Let's pursue some curiosity. There's some really cool ongoing research looking into how humans feel about each other. And I'm not talking about how we say we feel. I'm talking about how we really feel. Starting today and over the next few Mondays, you're going to learn about some of the ways researchers are testing their hypotheses, along with some super interesting results that various experiments have shown thus far. It's all part of our Mentality Mondays miniseries, and it stems from a conversation we had with the director of the Personality, Attachment, and Control Laboratory at Cornell University, Vivian Zayas. Here's Professor Zayas with an overview of her research, followed by a specific example of an unconscious bias you just might have. So one of my interests for a long time has been how do we mentally represent um, our relationships? How do we represent people who are really close to us, parents, partners, close friends? How do we represent ourselves? And, you know, one way that we can try to figure this out is by asking someone, what do you think about, you know, your partner? What do you think about your mom? But I'm not as interested in what people say. I'm more interested in reactions that may be triggered spontaneously, but that people may not necessarily be aware that they're triggered. And so I'm interested, and these are called sort of spontaneous evaluations, automatic evaluations, and the, the jargon, implicit attitude. Um, so these are attitudes we might have, and again, we might not necessarily be consciously aware that we have them, but they're expected to color how we behave. And so in my lab, we've been trying to measure them. So we can't ask people directly. So we have to try to get at these evaluations without asking people. Um, so we try to develop measures to try to tap into these evaluations and then try to see, well, what, what do they predict? Do they predict things that you know, are meaningful? Do they predict relationship satisfaction? Do they predict whether we're going to stay in the relationship or break up? And also, what do they reflect? Do they reflect our experiences in those relationships? And so that's been a focus of my work since the beginning. Uh, how do we represent relationships and really focusing on these sort of non-conscious responses. So how do you test those non-conscious responses? Good question. <laughs> it can be challenging, but one approach that's used to assess evaluations about oneself, sort of implicit self-evaluations, is called the initials preference test or the name letter effect. And the way it works is, Cody, your initials are CG. So the assumption is that what we would expect is that you like the letters CG more than I would like the letters CG, more than Ashley would like the letters CG. Because CG, they're associated with you. It's part of your name. And so one way that I can assess your implicit evaluations about yourself, how much you like yourself at the sort of non-conscious implicit level, is by seeing how much you like CG more than everybody else likes CG. And it's non-conscious because I didn't ask you directly to tell me how you feel about yourself. I didn't ask you anything about yourself. I'm just asking you to evaluate letters. So that's one way that we could try to tap into these non-conscious evaluations. When it comes to how you feel about a partner, one approach has been to do something similar. We would expect people to like the initials of their partner more than the average person likes those same letters. 
and that would be a measure of sort of positivity. The more positive it is, the more it's supposed to be that you're thinking about your partner or some association with your partner um, activates positivity. And it's supposed to be a meaningful predictor of outcomes. So what does it say about me that I married a woman with the same first initial as me? Oh. And we agreed that she would take my life. You really like yourself. (laughs) I mean, yeah, both of our initials are CG now, which I'm pretty thrilled about, actually. Yeah, that is pretty funny. Um, There is some work where people gravitate towards certain professions that have their initials. So you might expect there's some work showing that um, people who are named Lewis are more likely to be lawyers. Uh, for example. Really? Um, one, you know, personally, I, I found myself one time going to Starbucks often, and I was um, buying, they have a smoothie called Vivano, and they have either the mango one or the strawberry. And I was going religiously. Every day I would go and buy the Vivano. And then later I was like, wow, every letter in Vivano is in my own first name, Vivian. Wow. <laughs> so th- that might have played a small role. So there you go. The name letter effect is the tendency to prefer the letters in your name over other letters in the alphabet. This is just scratching the surface of findings coming out of the Personality Attachment and Control Laboratory at Cornell University. Buckle up, because next week you'll hear again from the lab's director, Vivian Zayas, and learn about the surprisingly complicated feelings people have for one another. You can also hear her and many other experts on Cornell University's podcast series called What Makes Us Human. Their episodes are really interesting and even shorter than ours at about four to six minutes long. You can find links to that podcast and more in today's show notes. Today's episode is sponsored by First Alert. There are three things every homeowner wants their home to be. Smarter, safer, and more fun. What if I told you one link by First Alert can cover that whole trio? First, meet your family's new best friend, the OneLink Safe and Sound. It's a hardwired smart smoke and carbon monoxide alarm with a premium home speaker. And it's Alexa enabled, all in one sleek device. It's built with First Alert safety technology and provides a great sound experience that's totally immersive. The Safe and Sound truly elevates any home. But it gets even better than that. OneLink by First Alert also offers the OneLink smart smoke and carbon monoxide alarm that works with the OneLink Safe and Sound. It's easy to install, and it protects against both smoke and carbon monoxide. If it detects smoke or CO in your home, the smart alarm will notify you using exclusive voice and location technology and send a notification to your smartphone, whether you're at home or away. A smart home should start with smart protection, and OneLink by First Alert welcomes you to a smarter, safer home. For more information, visit onelink.firstalert.com. Again, that's onelink.firstalert.com. You can follow your passion despite your day job, and we've got a daily regimen to help you do it. If you don't believe me, then keep in mind that this regimen worked for author Anthony Trollope. In his lifetime, he wrote 47 novels and 16 other books, and most of that was while he was an employee of the post office. Can you say hashtag goals? Hashtag squad goals. (laughs) Not squad goals. Or hashtag the word that you just taught me. What was that word? Multi-hyphenate. I didn't know that was a word. I didn't either until very recently. Noun, informal, a person, especially a celebrity, with several professions or skills. You're super multi-hyphenate. I guess so. Super ultra mega multi-hyphenate. <laughs> multi, multi, multi-hyphenate. Wow. So yeah, Anthony Trollope was born in London in 1815. So sure, he didn't have to deal with distractions like Facebook or Snapchat. Still, more than two dozen of his books had been published by the time he retired at the ripe old age of 52. 
So it's probably safe to say that he was more disciplined than your average Victorian era Joe. Here's what he wrote in his autobiography. Quote, It was my practice to be at my table every morning at 5.30 a.m. And it was also my practice to allow myself no mercy. By beginning at that hour, I could complete my literary work before I dressed for breakfast. All those, I think, who have lived as literary men, working daily as literary laborers, will agree with me that three hours a day will produce as much as a man ought to write, unquote. But, Trollope said, not all hours are made equal. It's easy to set aside time to write, and it's also easy to end up sitting around staring at your wall trying to think of ideas. To combat this, Trollope set many goals. He watched the clock and made a rule that he would write 250 words every 15 minutes. With that responsibility before him, the ideas just happened. That merciless approach got results in the ballpark of writing more than 10 pages of an ordinary novel volume every day. That would net you three novels of three volumes in a single year, although he said he never did write three novels in a year. Still, it really was just that simple. Working three hours a day adds up to quite a lot over a lifetime. So what's stopping you? Just set your alarm, lay out your stopwatch, and allow yourself no mercy. Join us again tomorrow for the award-winning Curiosity Daily and learn something new in just a few minutes. I'm Cody Goff. And I'm Ashley Hamer. Stay curious. On the Westwood One Podcast Network.